Good evening. If I can get some guys, Mark. Um, need to pass out lesson two tonight. Lesson two and back to the Bible. These, I'm handing to Ken here, lesson one. If you need a lesson one from last week, Ken would be glad to uh, make sure you have one of those. We do plan to start in lesson one and move our way into lesson uh, two tonight. Guys, we have extra number twos up here on the table. And if you need a pen or pencil, look around and see if you can borrow one. We want to fill out these lessons. Kind of unusual lesson, but I think it's uh, one that is very needed. Unusual series of lessons in that um, we're taking the time to read each scripture and to fill out the question, the answer to the question. These, these lessons are designed to see how to sit down with someone and share uh, the glorious news of the gospel uh, with others. And as you can see through these booklets, uh, it doesn't have to be very hard. As we are doing it here on Sunday night, you can do this with your neighbor or with a family member or a co-worker or anyone you might um, have a chance to study with. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18, Paul speaks of the Christian armor. Certain things we must have on us spiritually. Our loins girt about with truth. The breastplate of righteousness. Our feet shod with the, gospel, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Helmet of salvation. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And he also mentions there the shield of faith, where we can quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Notice the devil there. Does he send to us one dart or many darts? Yeah. You look there... It's plural, darts. And oftentimes, he's throwing at us everything that he's got. And what are we throwing back to him? We've got to have more than one strategy. 
The aim, of course, is to get the gospel into hearts, but we've got to use everything at our disposal to help that to happen. We have, we have house-to-house publication that it can be sent and can be handed to people. We have the opportunity and the ability, and I would say we do this pretty well here, sending out compassion cards and serving the needs of other people. We can certainly bring people to church with us. In fact, remember Brother Rob at the workshop divided all of us into three groups. We're either going to be a bringer or we're going to be a teacher or we're going to be a keeper. But either way, we are seeking to help people obtain salvation in Christ and help them to maintain that salvation. And then we must find a method that we can use to teach others when we're going to teach them. So we're throwing all this back at the devil. Compassion cards, good religious material, uh, teaching at church and sharing what we learn at church with other people. And we're constantly thinking about bringing and about teaching and about maintaining and keeping. We've got to throw back to Satan and to the world more than just one thing. So one of the things that we do is to learn to sit down and just... Just talk with someone. There's no more powerful use of time than two or three people sitting at a table with the Bibles open. It's, it's just, you cannot replace that. Okay. If you had a powerful preacher here okay, who could hold you in the palm of his hand with his every word, that preacher would not replace the simple setting down at a table with your Bibles open. It just cannot be replaced because that's the way God designed it. So we're here still in book number one. If you find the page where it says Deuteronomy 4 and verse number 2. Deuteronomy 4 and verse number 2. I think this is the time, the place where It's talking about not adding to God's Word. Remember last week we went through several verses. First of all, establishing the authority of Jesus' words. And then noticing how He placed His words in the minds and hearts of His apostles. And eventually, those apostles and early teachers wrote down these words and recorded them. So that now what is written is God's authoritative Word for us today. And now we need to notice that it's not proper. In fact, God does not want us adding to or taking away uh, from these words. So reading here in Deuteronomy 4 and verse number 2, You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may uh, keep the commandment of the Lord your God which I command you. And so um, would you please... um, Would you please God, the question is, would you please God if we added to or deleted anything from His Word? Would you please God if you add or take away anything from God's Word? What's the answer to that? No. Okay. Galatians 6, Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 9, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, Paul says, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Notice his question. Will we be accursed if we add to or take away from the Bible? Yes. 
Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, still speaking about adding to and taking away. Concerning the examples of Nadab and Abihu, and Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. So notice the question here. These men offered strange fire before the Lord, which he, what's the answer? Commanded them not. That's right. Did they alter God's commandments? Yes, they did. Was God pleased with them? No. And must we be careful how we handle the Word of God? Yes. Very good. Okay, that's from Leviticus 10 in Galatians uh, chapter 1 in Leviticus chapter uh, 10. Now from 2 John in verse 9, still on this idea of not adding to or taking away. John writes, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. But he that abideth in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Notice the question here. If we do not abide in the doctrine of Christ, is God pleased? No. Do you want to please God? Yes. Jesus' words now in Matthew 15, verse 9, But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So, it says here, Their worship to God was unacceptable because they taught for doctrines. What's the answer? Commandments of men, right? Okay, so there it is from Matthew 15, verse 9, 2 John, verse 9. Not adding to or taking away, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And so the question is this, who will be allowed to enter heaven? Yes, those who do the will of the Father. Do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to go to heaven? Yes. We are under which law now is the next section okay. in the first book. So the scripture that begins this section is Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets but he has in these last days spoken unto us by his son whom he also made uh, by whom also he made uh, the worlds okay so here we go god formally gave his revelation to the fathers by the who by the prophets but today he speaks unto us through who through his son, right there from Hebrews uh, 1. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So the question is, how much authority did God give Jesus? He gave all authority uh, to Jesus. Okay. Very good. John chapter 12 now, verse 48. Jesus says, He that rejects me and receives not my words has one who judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in that last day. So here's the question. We will be judged by the words of who? 
The words of Jesus. John 1.17, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So the law was given by who? Moses. And grace came on the grace and truth came to us through who? Jesus. Okay. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 15. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Notice that from Hebrews 9, 15 to 17. So here's the simple question. Is Jesus the mediator of the New Testament? Yes, he is. And then, when did the New Testament of Jesus go into effect? So it would be after his death. Also studying under which law that we are under, notice from Hebrews 8, 6, and 7, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So again, is Jesus the mediator of a better covenant? Yes. If that first covenant, the Old Testament, had been faultless, would God have given us the second covenant, that is the New, covenant, New Testament? No. Verse 8, for finding fault with them, he said. Notice here from Hebrews uh, 8, verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first old. Now, that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. Here's the question. When God gave the new covenant, did he make the first one old? That is no longer in force. Yes. Next passage from Acts chapter 13, 38 and 39. Paul says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that though this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Okay. So notice this very important question here. Can we, be, can we be justified by the law of Moses? Through Jesus in the New Testament, you can be forgiven of your sins, justified from all things, but you could, that cannot take place now by the law of Moses. So we cannot be justified by that law. Galatians chapter 3, beginning verse 11 and and the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse 
for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Is the law of faith? No. It says it right there, the law is not of faith. Did Christ redeem us from the curse of the law? Yes, He did. Moving on now to Colossians 2.14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. When was the bond written in ordinance abolished? When was the bond written in ordinances, that is the old law, abolished? Nailed to the cross. And Jesus was nailed uh, to the cross. Next passage, similar in Ephesians 2.15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. What did Jesus abolish in his flesh? That's right, the law of commandments. Now from Galatians 3, 23 to 25, still speaking about the difference between the old law and new law. But before, before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Now notice this. Now that faith has come, are we under the law? Now that the gospel has come, now that faith in Jesus has come, then we are no longer under the law. Romans 7 verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Paul says, you also are become what to the law by the body of Christ? Dead. Dead. Okay. Romans 7 verse 6, but now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So here we go. Paul says, now we are what from the law? Delivered from the law. Is the New Testament the law spiritually binding today? Is the New Testament the law spiritually binding today? So notice, as we were speaking uh, last week about the chain of authority, it starts with uh, God the Father, who put all authority in His Son, who put His authority and words in uh, the Apostles through the Holy Spirit, and the Apostles through the Holy Spirit also uh, brought us the Bible, and the law that we're under now is the New Testament. So if you follow this chain of events, this map of Revelation is called here, then you see that the authority of Jesus is in the New Testament uh, today. 
Are we still under uh, the Ten Commandments? Of course, uh, that would be no. And so, uh, notice a summary here of this uh, first booklet. We have learned the teaching of Jesus was from God. We've also learned, number two, Jesus received all authority from God in heaven and on earth, over all flesh, and over the church. Number three, we will be judged by the teaching of Jesus. And number four, the apostles were inspired by the Holy Spirit in what they taught and what they uh, wrote. The fifth thing that we learn is uh, the inspired word is our only guide in religion today. Number six, we must not add to or take away from God's word. And number seven, the New Testament is the law which we are under and by which we will be judged. So take lesson one and use it for the glory of our Lord. Opening up now, book number two. Book number two is going to focus on the church, Jesus being the builder of the church. We're going to talk a little while about the organization of the church and then the worship of the church and the name of the church. So Brother Paul, in that third section, it talks quite a bit about music. I'm not sure we'll get to that tonight, but we're going to get there. Okay. All right. so let's get started with Jesus and uh, the church. Notice from Matthew chapter 16, are you, are you there? Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 in your booklet. Jesus said, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, number one, who built the church? Jesus. To whom does the church belong? Jesus. And did Jesus build churches plural or the church singular? The church singular. Very good. Notice this passage from Paul, Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23, hath put all things under his feet. And gave him to be the head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Question, is Jesus the head of, over all things to the church? And then notice this, in verse 23, the church is also called his what? It's called his body. And I think at this point is where we build this monster. Okay. So we take just a moment to create this monster. That's a monster there with two heads and one body. And the next monster is one head and two bodies. And the reason this is thrown in is to remember what's just said. Jesus is the head of his body. The church. Okay. One head, one body. 
And to think of it in any other way is, of course, to create some kind of monstrous scene which God has never, uh, was never in his mind in his mind in the first place. So you've got a two-headed figure here and a one-headed uh, figure. Continuing here on uh, the church, Ephesians 4, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, even as, even as you are called and one hope of your calling. Is there only one hope? Yes. Is there only one Holy Spirit? Yes. And is there only one body, that is the church? Yes. Moving on. John chapter 17, Jesus' prayer for unity. He says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may also, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may also be one, even as we are one. So, simple question here. Did Jesus pray that his followers would all be one? Yes, he did. Moving on now to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. So this question is, is religious division condemned? That will be a yes. Since religious division is condemned, and since Jesus prayed that all his followers would be one, must we strive to be one in a religious way? So that's from 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Now from Colossians 1.18, concerning Jesus, it says, He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Here comes the question. Since Jesus is the head of the church, the body, should we go to any other person than Jesus? and the inspired writers of the New Testament to learn the organization, worship, and name of the church. Of course, we should not go anywhere else but our Lord and His Word. Matthew fifteen thirteen, But He answered and said, Every plant which my Heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. And then the question... If a church is not built in accordance with the Word of God, will it be rooted up? Okay. Right. This moves on now to the organization of the church. Acts chapter 14 and verse 23. Acts 14, 23. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they had uh, believed. Question, did these inspired men ordain elders in every church? That's a yes. 
Are we right if we do as they did in ordaining a plurality of elders in every congregation? And that would be a yes. It would be right. Could we be wrong if we did not organize the church the way those inspired men of God did? And we could be wrong. Okay? We don't seek to do that. From Acts chapter 20 and verse 17 and 28, Paul here traveling and from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. He said to them, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. Are the are the elders to be the overseers of the church? That would be a, another yes. Here we go. In Titus chapter 1, 5 through 7, For this cause I left you in Crete, Paul to Titus, that you should set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I ha- had appointed uh, you to do. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, not a striker, not given to filthy lucre. Here's the question with that verse. When Paul told Titus to set things in order, did he tell him to ordain elders? Yes. When we do that with what Titus did in organizing the church, are we doing the will of God? Yes. Do the terms elders, bishop, and overseer refer to the same office? That will be another yes. So that's from Titus chapter 1, yes, yes, and yes. From 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he falls into condemnation of the devil. So simple questions here. Must an elder be married? Must an elder have children? And then, may a recent convert or novice serve as an elder? And these questions are just a little bit old. If they were formed or created in our day, they might have added the question, must he be a man? But uh, that's obvious there from husband and one wife. <coughs> must he be a man? Yes. That's what I said. 1 Timothy 3 about deacons, 8 through 12. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy liquor. And let these also first be proved, and then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. What church official is under consideration here? Deacons. Is it God's plan that there be qualified elders and deacons in every church? Okay, yes on that. 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So, filling in the blank here, the church at Philippi was organized with blank and blank. Church at Philippi was organized with blank and blank. The truth is, they need a couple more blanks there, don't they? Because you don't have an organization of the church just having the elders and deacons. You need the saints and the servants as well. We'll let them get away with that. So the church at Philippi was organized with elders, bishops, and deacons. So we'll... We'll start right there next Lord's Day evening, the good Lord willing with the worship of the church. We'll get right into the subject that our brother Paul was, was uh, discussing earlier. Brother Aaron had um, the idea that perhaps next week we can have uh, different uh, men, maybe even young men, reading the scripture as we give the answer. We'll try to work that in as well. As we prepare to sing the song of encouragement, I'd like for us to consider Jonah for just a moment. We focused this morning on the seamen, the mariners. Several good qualities about these mariners. They were seeking for the truth. They allowed the tough time of life there to motivate them to draw close to God. They eventually humbled themselves and obeyed God. They started right away fearing God exceedingly, sacrificing for Him. What about Jonah? What about Jonah? Jonah's another story. Let me share a few things with you about Jonah and Looking at Jonah helps us to look at ourselves. First, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, and he did not go to Nineveh at first. He did not want to share the good news of Jesus. How did that make God feel? What was God's reaction to that? What is God's reaction to us when we do not want to and we refuse to share the good news with others. He did not want to go. Second thing about Jonah. His heart was hardened against it. Even after that ferocious storm came upon them on the sea, they found Jonah in the inner part of the ship sleeping. How could he be sleeping? How can he be sleeping knowing that he directly just opposed the very will of God? Well, he had become hardened. Ephesians 4, 17-19 talks about a person in his heart being past feeling. In other words, you've gone beyond the ability to feel and be moved or be touched by the Word of God. And so Jonah's heart was hardened against it. Also, I would say, 
that Jonah was self-deceived because when they began to ask Jonah, well, well, who are your people? What's your occupation? Where is it that you come from? Jonah said, I fear the Lord who, uh, who made uh, the earth, the dry land, and the sea. I fear that Lord. Well, he may have said that he feared that God, but in his actions, he was not fearing God. Isn't it amazing that a person can, can say, on the one hand, I fear the Lord. On the other hand, do the very opposite of what the Lord had asked him to do. It's, it's amazing. How, and how can people sit and sing praises to God, but then uh, not act on it during the week? And so we need to uh, look. Jonah makes us look at ourselves, what I'm, what I'm saying. Let me ask you this. Did Jonah on that day, when he went to Joppa and paid his wage to get on that ship? By the way, have you ever spent some money and it just flopped on you? Have you ever spent some money and, you, and right away you said, that was not well spent. This is money not well spent by Jonah. He paid his fare, got on that ship, and things went downhill fast. Okay. It was not a good venture. He, he got, did, when Jonah went to Joppa, did he plan to convert an entire ship of people to the Lord God? Was that his plan? No, of course not, but is that what happened? I mentioned this in order to enhance our faith. God can take any situation and create a conversion out of it. So don't let me think, let us not think that our little effort of sharing a, a paper, a house-to-house paper, or sharing a track or calling someone and inviting them to church, or asking someone to sit down and and share just a simple Bible verse pamphlet with you. And perhaps you will just take that pamphlet and, and just stumble through it. Do you think, even if you stumble through it, do you think, don't you think that God could take that and turn that into something really glorious? We know that He can. If he can take the rebellion of Jonah and create conversions out of it, then God can take our good intentions and our good works and create even more good things out of that. And so let's consider ourselves as we consider Jonah. We're here as the family of God. If we can assist you in any way this evening, if you need prayers of the congregation, perhaps prayers of strength, Perhaps there's something that you need to confess openly before everyone. Perhaps it is this day that you'll put Jesus on in baptism, receive the forgiveness of sins, begin your journey to heaven. Can we help you in any way? Please make that known right now as we stand and as we sing.